All right, we're going to uh, finish up talking about the Roman trials portion of Jesus' last day. Uh, If you remember last week as we talked about it, we we focused on uh, his um, examination by Pilate that then turned into an examination by Herod that then led to his uh, um, situation where he and Barabbas were both offered up to the people, and the people chose Barabbas, and then we talked about his, at the end of class last week, how he was uh, flogged or scourged by the soldiers. In all of those events after Pilate initially examined Jesus, he was trying, Pilate was trying to find a way out of this scenario. He was trying to find a way where he wouldn't end up being the bad guy one way or another. So he sends him to Herod, hoping Herod will handle it. The Herod doesn't handle it. Herod passes the buck back to Pilate. And then Pilate thinks, well, I, I could offer up a different prisoner for freedom, and, and uh, maybe they uh, uh, would rather have Jesus free than this murderer. And that backfired on him. He underestimated the people. And then he thought, well, I'll just, I'll just have him flogged, and he'll come out so beaten and so uh, wounded, and, and, and they, they, won't, they won't want anything else, and they'll be satisfied. And that didn't work for him either. So Pilate's been trying to wiggle out of this one way or another, and now he finds himself uh, face-to-face with the, the, the mob, with the crowd, and having to decide how he's going to move forward. I want to read these last few verses uh, from the reading last week. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, that's Barabbas, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to be crucified. So Pilate has kind of gotten backed into a corner, and here's what I, f- I find interesting. There are two narrative statements here that, that are worth noting. Uh, the first is in John chapter 19 and verse 8 where it says, When Pilate heard this statement, and it's a reference back to John chapter 19 and verse 7, where the people said, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. We're told that when Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. Now, do you remember what the Jewish Sanhedrin found Jesus guilty of. Blasphemy. That's what they're referring to when they said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Because under Mosaic law, if you commit blasphemy, that's a capital offense. But when they presented Jesus to Pilate, Pilate nor Rome cares about blasphemy. So they had to come up with a different accusation, a different charge. Do you remember what the charge was that they presented to Pilate? insurrection, essentially. And so now Pilate is concerned because with them saying in John chapter 19 and verse 7 that according to our law he must die, Pilate's wheels are churning and, and, and he's afraid of what they're going to do because now, now he realizes, okay, the reason they want him dead is because they've got a re- religious devotion here to their cause. And so now Pilate's afraid of what they're going to do because, notice, a riot was beginning. Rome didn't like riots. Rome didn't like it when groups of people were uh, in opposition to something about government. So what they would do is they'd come in and squish it. 
And, and they would also come in and say, all right, you were in charge and you couldn't handle this, so you're not in charge anymore. So Pilate's worried about losing his position, if not his life, to the government of Rome. And he's finding out that the motivation here runs much deeper than he, he may have initially thought. The second thing that's interesting to me is a statement in Mark chapter 15 and verse 15, where it says that Pilate was wanting to gratify the crowd. That was not part of our, our reading uh, t- tonight, but Mark 15, 15 says that Pilate was wanting to gratify the crowd. Another translation says Pilate was wishing to satisfy the crowd. Now, this indicates that Pilate's decision was driven by a desire to appease people rather than to execute justice. So he's, he's afraid, and that indicates he's afraid when they say uh, that he ought to, Jesus ought to die according to their law. He's afraid, and that indicates that he was motivated out of fear rather than his belief in Christ's innocence. And when we find out that he wants to gratify the crowd or satisfy the crowd, that indicates that he's driven by the pursuit of appeasement rather than justice. So nothing about this is fair at this point. And so that's when Pilate decides the best thing I can do is declare my innocence in this cause. I'm going to wash my hands. Matthew chapter 27 verse 24 tells us how he took water, washed his hands, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. There's a lot of problem with that statement. Because Pilate, just because he symbolically washed his hands of the matter, he's still the one technically ordering Jesus' crucifixion because there's nobody else in an authoritative position that could do that. The Jews could not, per Roman law, execute somebody. That was not something they had the prerogative to do. So essentially, Pilate is claiming his innocence, but he's still ordering Jesus' execution, because guess who's controlling the events at the cross? Is it the Jewish priests? Is it temple guards? It's Roman soldiers. And who do they answer to in this region? They answer to Pilate. So while Pilate may be trying to declare his innocence, he's not innocent. He has announced Jesus's he has announced Jesus's innocence on this issue three times. He was the authoritative figure in that region and he didn't have the courage to stick with what he knew was right. And that led to Jesus's execution. So with that being said, that covers in general the events of the Roman crucifixion, I mean the Roman trials, and at this point Jesus is led away to be crucified. And so I want to spend our time um, understanding crucifixion tonight, and then next week we'll, we'll probably break down the events that happen around the cross a little more in detail. Uh, but tonight let's start with a reading. Uh, again, this is going to be a, a conglomerate of the four Gospels. This is going to be bringing all four together for a singular reading, trying to catch all the big pieces together. So bear with me as we read through um, the accounts related to the crucifixion at this point. And they led him out to crucify him, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. 
They, that, that is a reference to the soldiers, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And they crucified him, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whom it shall be, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani! which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing this said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And behold, the centurion, oh, excuse me, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So what I want to do tonight is I want to, to really just talk about crucifixion in general and, and get a grasp of what's going on. I want to begin, though, by doing some location scouting, I guess you will. Sometimes, for me, it's helpful to get an idea of where these events are occurring. 
And on the screen is a, a Google map representation of Jerusalem. The white rectangle to the right side of the screen outlines the Temple Mount, uh, where many events began uh, during the last week of Jesus' life, the temple cleansing, things like that. You can see two blue rectangles as well. Those represent the two possible locations where Jesus would have appeared before Pilate. The one connected to the Temple Mount is known as the Fortress Antonia. It's on the, that northwest corner of the Temple Mount, and it's where the soldiers would be stationed when they were in Jerusalem during these high feast days. And it's possible that this is where Jesus was kept because this, this would serve well as a prison. And Pilate would, would have access to that location, and Pilate would go there from time to time. The other blue square, more towards the south and center of the screen, or the bottom center of the screen, is um, a, a uh, Herodian palace that existed there in, in Jerusalem as well. And it's, it's a, a quite possible place where, G, where excuse me, Pilate would have stayed when he came into town. Typically, Pilate lived in Caesarea. But when there was a high feast day and there was going to be all, all of these uh, Jewish migrants in town and the religious fervor was going to be high and there could be some issues, uh, the, the pilot would come to town to help make sure the peace was kept along with his uh, regiment of soldiers. So those two locations could have been where Jesus met with Pilate, either one of those blue uh, boxes there. You'll notice at the top of the screen, almost center top, is a red star. That red star represents one possible location uh, that has been attributed to uh, the site of the crucifixion as well as the burial of Jesus. And it's known as Gordon's Calvary. Now, one thing we need to know is in order to determine where, where Jesus, uh, where the crucifixion took place, we have a few indicators in Scripture, just a few. Uh, there, are, there are three clues. Number one, the place must have been outside of Jerusalem. And here's why. Roman law and Jewish law, for that matter, directed crucifixion to take place outside the city. That kind of capital punishment, that kind of execution, was required outside of city limits. Now, um, looking back at this map, that red star is still inside of Jerusalem city, city limits, but in first century Jerusalem, that would have been outside the city limits. So one clue you have to, to go with when you're determining where this possible location could be is it would, based on laws, be outside the city. Another thing that would likely be the case is that it would have been a fairly um, uh, obvious location, a, a conspicuous spot, because typically when Rome crucified people, they used it as a deterrent. They wanted you to see the crucified individual so that you won't do the same thing. And so they often did it on major highways, on major routes between cities, or near city gates, that sort of thing. So more than likely, the lo location needs to be near a a, a major road or a major entrance into the city. And a third thing is there has to be a garden there. Jesus is taken down from the cross in John chapter 19, verse 41 and 42, and placed in a garden tomb very near where the crucifixion took place. And so there has to be some uh, degree of burial area in this same location as where the cross uh, where Jesus was crucified. Now we also know the fourth thing is the name, the name of this location, Golgotha. And what does it mean? Place of the skull. Now this picture on the screen 
is known as Gordon's Calvary around 1900. There was a British officer in, the, in, in Israel years ago, and on a scouting trip he went outside the city and saw this location, and he just knew this had to be it because, well, there is some skull-like features to that rock formation, particularly with the uh, two eyes up near the top of it. And so this has become a very popular place to go that, that some have associated as the possible location of Calvary. Um, here's another picture of it, a little more current and from a different angle, but you can see the, the eye cavities kind of formed into the rock there that have led some to believe that this could possibly be the location. Now, in fairness, this British officer saw this location in the late 1800s, and he just believed this had to be it because it looked like a skull. By the way, here's another view of the whole area. You can see it's become a very touristy spot now. But there's not a lot of evidence to support his claim. It's just, hey, he saw it, he thought it looked like a skull, therefore it must be it. So not very many scholars believe that that would actually be the location of Calvary because one of the things that um, is in, in, the, in Palestine and in Israel and all that area, whenever there's something that is uh, associated with a historical event in the Bible, there's usually something built on top of it. Uh, there's usually some sort of uh, church building built on top of it. And for this place to exist up until the 1800s without any um, significant uh, attraction brought to it seems unlikely in the area where, where these events occurred and where that history could have been passed down very easily. The more traditional spot, the more uh, well-known spot, which we don't know if this will be the correct spot either, neither, neither one is there any definitive evidence for, but it's a place known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is a church inside, that is now inside city limits of Jerusalem, but back in the day, it would have been outside the city limits. It's part of what's known as the Christian Quarter. Uh, there's a, uh, a Muslim quarter, a Jewish quarter, a Christian quarter. Anyway, you can see where it sits in relation to the uh, locations I mentioned earlier, the uh, places Pilate might have had Jesus, and then also the Temple Mount. And again, this would have been outside the city limits, and it would have been on a major highway leading outside the city. Here's a picture of the church from the outside, uh, and it's considered one of the, in Christianity, one of the holiest sites in uh, Jerusalem. Um, here is a diagram of what that church looks like. It is on the side of a hill. There is a cave system underneath the church. And on the right side, you can see where it says Golgotha's Rock. That is a rock formation over which the church was built that they claim that's the, the place where the, uh, the, the cross was put in the ground. And then the cave system behind it, or there to, going to the left of the screen, is said to be the location of where Jesus was buried. Just to give you an idea of, because when you look at the pictures I'm about to show you, you can't tell that there was a hill there. It, this church is just built into the side of it. Now, here is a picture of what's called the Altar of the Crucifixion. Um, inside this church building, you can see this glass box, this glass box. They are said to be encasing the very rock on which the cross was placed when Jesus was crucified. And somewhere under this altar, there's a hole, and you can reach in and touch that rock. So, this is, tradition says, this is where it was. There has been a church in this location since the, the mid-300s. Uh, it's been torn down, it's been rebuilt, stuff like that. But this is uh, 
the, the place that's been preserved historically as the location of Jesus' crucifixion. Whether or not it is, is not something we'll ever know, uh, but that's why this building exists there. I'll also show you this picture. This is directly beneath that altar that we just saw and the rock that's encased beneath that. Uh, this is called the, oh, I didn't put the, oh, Chapel of Adam. All right, so there's this tradition that, Jesus, that is not in Scripture, but this is the tradition. Adam, the tradition is that Adam's skull was buried in the same spot Jesus was crucified, and that when Jesus was crucified, the blood ran down the cross into the ground and filled up Adam's skull. I, I, this has to come from somewhere, but I don't know where. So this, that's why it's named Chapel of Adam. But in the, you can see a window in the back of this chapel. I'm just showing you this because it's just intriguing, the, the, the stuff they come up with. If you look through that window, you'll see this. It's just cracked rock. And what they claim is that that crack is formation from the earthquake that happened after Jesus was crucified. Just thought I'd show you that because just they, the, the connections they make with these things. But uh, I also believe that in that crack somewhere is where the skull of Adam was when it filled up with Jesus' blood. So anyway, I just like to show this stuff because so, you may never make it to Israel. I may never make it to Israel. I find it interesting to see what people claim is the spots. Kurt. Let's also not forget that the Ottoman Empire came through and conquered as well. In fact, uh, what's interesting about this church is it's not owned by one single religious body. It's owned by like four or five. In fact, the doors, the entrance to it, uh, are overseen by a Muslim family because one Christian uh, religion is allowed to have control over the doors so that they can't prevent you from coming into this building. So it's, it's complicated and crazy. Um, but anyway... Moving on from that, uh, that just kind of gives you some ideas about the location and, and where it could have taken place. And uh, I do like looking at Gordon's Calvary, not because I think that's where it happened, but the idea of how rock formations could be in the side of a hill and give the impression of a skull that could likely give uh, credence to the name that was given to the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, when Jesus was led away from the praetorium, from being before Pilate, He's got this walk. He's got a walk from the praetorium to the place of, of execution. And if you um, read the, the account of Jesus' um, uh, progress there, he struggles under the weight of the cross. And Mark chapter 15, verse 21 tells us that, that uh, they compelled a passerby a guy named Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Jesus couldn't carry the cross by himself. They had to recruit somebody. They had to conscript somebody to carry it for him. I, I'm interested in Simon. 
Uh, does anybody know where Cyrene is? Northern Africa, you know what country that would be today, though, specifically? Libya. This guy was from modern-day Libya. So he's come a good ways. The fact that he's from modern-day Libya is an indicator that he was likely a Jew of the diaspora who was, who was in town for Passover. He had traveled into town for this holy feast, and he, so he, he's not from Jerusalem more than likely. Well, we know he's not. He's Simon of Cyrene. But he, he's, a, he's in town for the festival, and he's the guy that's going to be conscripted to carry the cross. Um, it's very, very interesting. His name is preserved. There are a lot of people in Scripture whose names never get preserved for us. But this guy's name is preserved. But not just his name, his children's name. It's almost like when Mark is compiling his gospel, which it's, uh, tradition says Mark uh, was uh, writing with, uh, for Peter, that it's mostly Peter's memoirs, and Mark is recording them for Peter in Rome when Peter uh, was in prison or something of that nature. Uh, but, but Mark felt it necessary to keep these guys' names as if his readers knew who they were. Now, what I also find interesting is if Mark did, in fact, write Peter's memories, and Peter was in Rome at the time of that, it's interesting to me that when Paul writes the book of Romans, he makes mention of a certain Rufus in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, making me wonder if the Rufus in Romans chapter 16 is the Rufus of Simon of Cyrene, if that's an indicator to us that this guy who carried the cross eventually became a Christian, or at least his family eventually became a Christian. There's also some Alexanders mentioned in the New Testament, but uh, I, I have yet to find a scholar who believes that any of the Alexanders are the same Alexander that's mentioned uh, as the son of Simon. So th th there is this possibility, at least, that maybe Simon, who's pictured here holding up the cross uh, in that artwork, is, it, it, there's the possibility with some scattered evidence, not strong evidence, but possibility that he became a follower of Christ in the event sometime after this. Um, but Simon is brought in to carry the cross because Jesus, Jesus is unable. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. See, the responsibility of a convicted criminal, his one responsibility he had from the point of uh, his court appearance or his punishment phase, his one responsibility, uh, under, according to Rome, was that he had to carry the horizontal beam of the cross to the site of execution. As you can see in this artwork, we have a depiction of the entire cross. The truth is, the entire cross would weigh more than most of us could carry on our own, in a healthy state. You're dealing with someone who has been severely beaten, large amounts of blood loss, trying to carry massive amount of pounds. That just doesn't add up too well. So, According to historical accounts, usually only the cross beam, which is called the, I'm not going to try. The cross beam is the part that typically was carried by the criminal to the side of the crucifixion, because typically the Romans left the upright post in the ground all the time. They were always there; you could always see them. Made it easier on them; they just got to attach that top post, and they're done. I mean, work, work. Work smarter, not harder, right? 
So Jesus likely is just dealing with that crossbeam, and this diagram comes from a, a wonderful article that you can download on the internet. It is called, um, oh, let me, on the phys, it's, it's from the Journal of the American Medical Association, so a prestigious medical journal. It's called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, and it's where some medical professionals came together. Uh, there's several of them, I can't mention them all, and they came together and they wrote an article in 1984 of the medical evidence for the death of Jesus. It's wonderful read, um, and uh, if you ever want it, you can get it pretty easily off the internet. But this is one of the diagrams from it where they talk about how Jesus would have likely had just that crossbeam. Um, and let me make sure I'm not missing something here. It's interesting, the soldiers had the ability to enforce someone to help carry that, that cross beam if the uh, condemned individual was unable to carry it for himself. It's kind of like um, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 41 where a soldier could compel you to carry his equipment for up to a mile. That was a, that was a law, under Roman law, a soldier could make anybody carry his armor or his weaponry for up to one mile. And then Jesus says, okay, if you, if you are forced to go one mile, go two. You know, Jesus instilling this, this idea of, of, um, of mercy, of love, of servitude. So that similar ability that the soldiers had to make you carry their equipment applies here as well when they're dealing with a condemned uh, criminal and, and having to get him to the cross. So that, that gets us to Calvary. That gets us to Golgotha. That gets us to the side of the crucifixion when we talk about Simon, we talk about carrying the cross. And from here, I, I'm going to focus on crucifixion itself. Because when you look at the Gospels, all they say is, there they crucified him. Just that word, crucified. It doesn't go into detail. It doesn't tell how crucifixion happened. It just says, there they crucified him. And that can get easily lost on us if we don't appreciate what crucifixion meant. Because it hasn't been in practice for quite some time. You need to realize this. Crucifixion was the most horrendous form of capital punishment likely ever devised. Uh, the, our word that we use, the word excruciating, the word excruciating is derived from the Latin term, which means out of the cross. It's the way you describe the level of pain and torture that came out of crucifixion. So when you say this, this is excruciating, you're saying this is like being nailed to a cross. might want to rethink using that. We might be demeaning the crucifixion of Christ when we say that. So uh, we need to appreciate just how horrible this form of death is. And so I'm going to use this article I mentioned on the, physical, uh, on the physical death of Jesus Christ that was published in 1986 by the Journal of American Medical Association. I'm going to use it to kind of convey some things here. Uh, first, let's talk about the type of cross Jesus was crucified on. There, there are more than just these three types of crosses. But which one do we typically see associated with Jesus? The middle one. So we've got three crosses here. I'm, the, the first one is a capital T cross. That's all you need to know. It's called the Tau cross. The Tau is the letter in the Greek alphabet that it resembles. Uh, and that, that's one you may see occasionally. But the one we're most familiar with is the one in the middle, the Latin cross, the lower T 
cap, the lower T cross. That's what we're most familiar with. There is also the X-shaped cross uh, that you may have heard of before, but it doesn't get appear nearly as much. We're used to that middle one. All of the majority of artwork uses that lower T cross. That's what we're used to. Archaeological and historical evidence, though, strongly indicates that the low tau cross was preferred by Romans in Palestine. In other words, during the time of Jesus in this region, more often than not, Rome used the capital T cross. It was easy to assemble. It was easy to get the, the criminal up there. And the quote that I just read from used the word low, t, low tau cross. They could have them very high off the ground, but oftentimes they would be just a few feet above the ground. Like, think about some of the events that are going to happen with Jesus. When he's on this cross, he's going to be, uh, they're going to use a spear to stick a sponge in his mouth for him to take a drink. Uh, they're, they're going to be close enough to have conversation with him. The likelihood is that his feet are, are probably not much higher than this stage is, the top of the stage is from the ground. He's not so elevated that you can't reach him. I mean, they're going to have to get him down off this cross at some point, too. So it, 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 it's often, uh, archaeological evidence suggests that it was a lower to the ground cross rather than a higher, and it was likely the t capital T cross. In fact, I think I have a, the quote I need to put up there now uh, about this. That kind of reframes the way, it doesn't ne necessarily affect anything to change which cross Jesus was crucified on. It just may help us to envision it a little bit better. Of course, we know there was a, a sign, also called a titulus, that was hung above him. John chapter 19, verse 19 through 22, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now this signage that goes above the... Oh, let me skip to here. The signage that went above the cross, that was standard practice. It was the custom for the crime that the person was being crucified for would be written in some form and either hung around his neck or carried by somebody before him as he walked to the cross or, or, or attached to the cross in some fashion so that everybody would know what he did. And it's interesting because this is written in three languages. Aramaic was the language, the common language of the people who lived in Judea. Latin was the official language of the Roman army. And Greek was the standard language of the Roman Empire. And so the reason for having all three languages represented there is the Romans had, a, as one author said, a vested interest in publicizing the nature of the crime that resulted in such punishment as a warning to every segment of the population. In other words, they wanted it to be known to everyone who might pass by there, to whatever language they could understand. They wanted it known. This is what he did. And so they used the, the three major languages that were in, in place in that particular region in that day. And the wording makes it clear that the charge on which Jesus is found guilty, not the charge for which he was accused, was the charge of sedition. 
not the charge of blasphemy. If it was a charge, you notice how in the reading I just gave from John 19 a moment ago, the religious leaders wanted to get Pilate to change it to say, I am, he said he was the king of the Jews. No. Pilate wouldn't go for that because that's blasphemy. That has nothing to do with Roman law. Instead, what Pilate puts up there is something that makes reference to sedition, that Jesus was claiming to be a king in opposition to Caesar. That's ultimately what is put on his cross with an accusation for his reason for being executed. It goes along with insurrection, but it's a little more serious than that. It's saying that Jesus is claiming to be uh, superior to Caesar, ultimately, in, some, in, in one form or another. And this is kind of Pilate's way of getting back at the Jewish leaders. All right, you forced my hand to do this. I'm not going to let you have the accusation up there that you want. I'm going to give the accusation that is a Roman execution-worthy accusation, not what you want it to be. It's kind of his way of, uh, of thumbing his nose at him in some fashion. And so Jesus likely had to wear that around his neck or have somebody carry it in front of him as he made his route to the side of the crucifixion and then had it attached to that cross. I want to go back to this slide. In mentioning that the capital T cross was the most prominently used one in the region, it's sometimes hard for us to imagine, well, how do they get that thing up there? I mean, these guys are pretty good engineers. All this is as simple as uh, it can be in, in, in carpentry terms. It's just a, a mortise and tendon joint. And all they got to do is uh, get Jesus raised up high enough to have that slot sit down on the top of the, the upright post so that it fits in there nice and tight and it's not going anywhere. It's interesting when you start considering you, you see movies and images of them nailing this cross beam to the face of the upright beam. No, it's much simpler than that. With these upright beams likely staying in the ground constantly, they had a nice little notch on the top so it could fit into whatever cross beam was brought and s- slotted onto it. So this is it's not that complicated of a, uh, an engineering tactic to do this. Just thought I'd share that as well. Moving on, let's talk about the actual attachment to the cross. When it comes to crucifixion, the hands could be nailed or they could be tied to the cross. But nailing was apparently the preferred method by the Romans. Because guess what? The Romans like torture. And think about it. If you're just tied to it, that doesn't hurt nearly as bad as if somebody drove a nail through your hand. Of course, I say hand. But as most of you have probably heard, it likely did not drive through the palm because there's just not enough support system there to hold up your body weight. Instead, that nail would have been driven through the wrist, through the area right about here. And I'll show a diagram in just a moment. The archaeological remains of a crucified body found in a ossuary, and an ossuary is just a little burial box that after somebody died, you collect their bones and you put it in the box. Uh, the archaeological remains of a crucified body found in an ossuary near Jerusalem and dating from the time of Christ indicates that the nails that were used were five to seven inches long with a square shaft about one centimeter across. You know, sometimes when we picture these, um, the crucifixion, we, 
We picture these nice little dainty nails, don't we? What we're dealing with is railroad spikes, essentially, that are going through the wrist. It's been shown, this coming from the journal uh, article that I mentioned, it has been shown that the ligaments and bones of the wrist can support the weight of a body hanging from them, but the palms cannot. Although a nail in the wrist might pass between the bony elements and thereby produce no fractures, the likelihood of painless injury would seem great. Do you know why? Because there's this wonderful median nerve running right through here, and the likelihood is that as the Romans drove the spike through there, they're crushing that nerve. Anybody ever done something to a nerve, injured a nerve in some fashion? I've got an injury here on my pinky. You may remember a few years ago I tried to cut my pinky off with a hedge trimmer, and I severed the nerve there, and they did reattach it, but it's not the same. I mean, I don't have 100% feeling in that finger anymore. And I've got this one spot where apparently the nerve kind of sticks out a little bit, and if I just bump it just ever so slightly in that spot, it'll bring me to my knees. It's just a, a little nerve in my pinky, but it can make me almost cry. I can't imagine having a nerve crushed by a nail that's not getting removed anytime soon while you're alive. The authors of that article said the stimulated nerve would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. And although the severed median nerve would result in paralysis of, the por- of a portion of the hand, ischemic contractures and impalement of various ligaments by the iron spike might produce a claw-like, claw-like grasp. That once that nail goes in, it may make Jesus' hands fold up into a claw that he can't control anymore. I just read all that. Here's a diagram of what this would look like. You can see in the middle picture of the hand that's kind of formed in a claw-like fashion where that uh, window-ish looking diagram shows how the spike would go in. You can also see on the right side uh, how the spike would sit within the wrist and uh, there's uh, arrows pointing to where the nerve would have run through and likely been crushed by this spike. We need to appreciate they crucified him. And understand the amount of pain just having these nails driven through Jesus' wrist would, just not, not hanging on the cross, just having the nail driven through his wrist would have caused. That ain't nothing compared to the feet. Next, the feet were fixed to the cross either by nails or ropes, but again, Rome preferred nails. And you've probably seen images like this before. Most depictions of Jesus having his feet nailed depict him as being on the cross with one foot on top of the other, nail driven through the top of the feet into the cross. That's how, for many years, it was believed it was done. But, not that long ago, this was found. This is actually quite a major archaeological discovery. It is the heel bone of Yohanan ben Hagal, a Jewish man in his 20s who was crucified in the first century. Now there's two pictures up there. It's the same bone. The first pic- the picture to the left is the clearest picture I've ever found of this. 
But the little one in the, in the white box I have, because if you really pay attention to it, you can see the tip of the nail curves a little bit, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But this is a heel bone of a man who was crucified. It was found in one of those burial boxes with the nail still attached to the heel bone. This little discovery teaches us one thing. They didn't drive the nails to the top of the foot. What they did is they put your foot on the side and drove the nail through the side. Now I want you to imagine that spike going through your ankle and your heel. Anybody ever had plantar fasciitis? I had that too. Boy, that's some pain, isn't it? Every time I'd have a flare-up of that, I would think about what it might be like for Jesus to have that spike sticking out of his foot. The other thing that we learned from that bone that was discovered is not only did they come in from the side, but before they drove it, drove it through your ankle, they put a piece of wood on top of your ankle, drive it through the wood and then through your ankle to help it stay attached. So on the outside of your ankle, the outside, so on the non-cross side of your ankle, there's a piece of wood keeping your foot stuck so that it can't pop off like a washer. On top of that, In this particular case, I showed you that that nail was bent. Either the bending of the tip of that nail is an indicator that they hit a knot in the wood and it was just kind of stuck in there, or maybe they were able to drive it all the way through the wood and they bent it so it wouldn't come, come off, it wouldn't detach. Both hands, both feet, with seven-inch spikes driven through them, crushing some bones, severing some nerves, tearing ligaments, tendons. That's excruciating pain. Here's the thing. Those spikes aren't going to produce much blood out of the wrist and out of the... Unless it, unless it catches a, a, a vein... There's not going to be a lot of blood loss from those spikes. There's going to be tremendous pain. And here's the assessment of medical professionals as to what causes the death of a crucifixion victim. Now, we've got to remember Jesus was flogged severely before this. And if you recall, when we were talking about this last week, Rome did not have a limit of how many whips you could receive like Jewish law had. So we don't even know how many times Jesus got hit. But the scourging would have caused tremendous blood loss. Could have resulted in some uh, severe injuries as well. But crucifixion itself is not that bloody of a process. The major 
pathophysiological effect of crucifixion beyond the excruciating pain was a marked interference with normal respiration. So what happens when you're on that cross is that you can inhale oxygen easily. The problem you have is you can't exhale. Your body, because of the, your, the weight of your body on those wrists, it contorts in such a way that you can't get the carbon dioxide out very easily. The way your chest, your diaphragm, all that operates, to get that out, you would have to pull up with your wrists and push up with your feet to exhale properly. It becomes a process in which exhaling is no longer voluntary. You're sitting there right now. You're taking in oxygen and you're exhaling and you're not thinking about it at all. It's automatic. But when you're on the cross and you're in that position, you have to think about it. You have to force your body to exhale. And if you're not able to exhale, what's going to happen? It's going to lead to hypercarbia. That increase in buildup of carbon dioxide in your body. It leads to muscle cramps and contractions. And guess what? When you're having to lift up and push up, and now you add in cramps and contractions, that's going to make that even more difficult. Oh, and let's not forget, Jesus' back is shredded from the flogging, and every time he lifts up and pushes up, that back is scraping against that post. And every time one of those lacerations is trying to scab over, he's ripping that scab off. The medical professional's observation then is that the actual cause of death by crucifixion was multifactorial, but the two most prominent causes probably were hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxiation. Ultimately, you die on the cross from asphyxiation. Other possible contributing factors included dehydration, stress-induced arrhythmias, and congestive heart failure with rapid accumulation of pericardial and perhaps pleural effusions. And I want you to notice a couple things. In Scripture, we can see evidence for some of these diagnoses. For instance, Jesus' inability to carry the cross may be evidence of hypovolemic shock. That flogging that he endured prior to the crucifixion probably resulted in so much loss of blood that Jesus could not do things like walk. You can also consider every statement Jesus makes from the cross is just a few words in length. It's not like he's up there giving a big monologue. He says thing, one of the longest statements he makes is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, which is not that many words in Hebrew and Aramaic. Other, word, other phrases, I thirst, one word, essentially. It is finished, one word, to telestai. Behold your son, behold your mother. Jesus spoke very abruptly, and that could be evidence of his inability to exhale. 
He had to speak these short statements in between breaths. And as I have already alluded to, there's the one occasion where Jesus says, I thirst, and that desire for a drink may be evidence of the dehydration he's enduring while he's up there. And finally, when Jesus has passed away on the cross, and that soldier takes that spear and shoves it into his side, and out comes blood mixed with water. Many medical professionals believe that's evidence of a pericardial or pleural effusion. The buildup of water around the heart or the lungs, I believe. The point is that there is plenty of information in the Gospels surrounding the crucifixion that contribute to the evidence of a di- the, the, the diagnosis we know is associated with crucifixion as far as how one dies. Tonight, I, I spend this time going through the the medical side of crucifixion and, and talking about the details of how it's done because we, we only read the words, they crucified him, and don't always have a full capture of what that entails. And we need to appreciate the agony that Jesus is having to endure for us. He's there on that cross and going through this for you and I. And we need to understand exactly what he had to endure. Next week, we'll continue talking about the crucifixion, but we're going to talk about the events and the things we read about the crucifixion, the things Jesus said, the activities that are happening around it. I hope you'll be able to join us uh, as we only have a couple weeks left in this class. Are there any, I know that's kind of a rapid third bell, are there any questions or comments before we dismiss today? All right, then. Let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll get out of here. Lord, thank you for sending your Son, and thank you for his willingness to endure the cross. Help us to appreciate it. Help us to never overlook it. And Lord, help us to always remember it. We love you. It's through your Son's name we pray. Amen.